Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from Jonah 1, 1 to 3. Now to the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You may be seated. Before I pray for us this morning, Heath, do you mind grabbing those books on the front seat there? Whenever we start a a new sermon series, one of the things we want to do as a pastoral team, as elders... Thank you, Vanna. Um, we want to give you resources to help serve your time in that book. We want to say, hey, go read the book of Jonah and figure it out. Uh, I'm served, Heath served, Paul served uh, by other uh, forefathers and foremothers in the faith. And so I want to suggest some books to you before we get into it. Uh, the first is called Rediscovering Jonah by the late Tim Keller. Previously, it was published as The Prodigal Prophet, uh, but Rediscovering Jonah is, is what it's called now. It's fantastic. A great look at sort of the meta themes in the book of Jonah, and so I want to recommend that to you. If you're also like, I want to go a bit deeper, and I'm a bit nerdier, um, bless you, uh, kindred spirit. Um, This is called The Gracious and Compassionate God, Mission, Salvation, and Spirituality in the Book of Jonah by Daniel Timmer. It's a great deep dive into the themes of Jonah. Again, recommend that to you. You can't have any of these copies, by the way. I need them, but you can buy one. and then last, last thing is if you want to go verse by verse in Jonah, you're like, I just want to get more granular again. I love you. Um, this uh, commentary by Daniel Timmer on Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah is also just a fantastic sort of verse by verse walk through this book. I would encourage you, Jonah's four chapters. You can read through Jonah conceivably like hundreds of times before we're done this series. I'd encourage you to do that. It's a rich book that you're going to find out uh, has so much to say to us as a church. Well, let's pray. And then we're going to dive in. Father, we have been listening to so many things this week. Uh, Our own hearts, which more often than not are confused, feel certain things that we're, what is that about? We've been listening to other people, the world. Father, we want to hear from you this morning. We want to hear what you, the Lord of the universe, have to say to us through the spirit of your son Jesus this morning. And if we don't hear from you, Lord, we don't don't get what we need this week. So help us to hear. Soften our hearts. Open our hands. Open our eyes that we might receive and see all the goodness, all the beauty that you have for us in the text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open to Jonah uh, chapter 1. Jonah is a bit hard to find. I was saying this morning, it's after Obadiah, which might not help you out at all. Uh, But it's before the book of Micah, which might help you out a little bit. We find it in this group of what uh, scholars call the minor prophets. And the book of Jonah, we're going to learn, uh, is incredibly strange, incredibly surprising. If you don't know, its ending is quite abrupt. We're left wondering what happens to Jonah. We're left wondering what happens to the Ninevites after their repentance. And we have to go to the book of Nahum, the prophet Nahum, to find out Nineveh's fate. If you don't know, a man is swallowed in this book by a giant fish and then regurgitated out onto dry land. That's pretty strange. But perhaps the strangest thing about the book of Jonah is its beginning three verses. These three verses that we heard Mariko read for us today. And to see how surprising these verses are, I want to begin our time in this series by orientating us to the world of Jonah. So look at Jonah 1, verse 1 with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, in one respect, if you've read your Bible, there is nothing really strange about this verse. This is the the classic sort of typical prophetic formula or statement that opens so many prophetic books in the Bible. If you were to read the book of Joel or the prophet Joel, it's the word of the Lord, right, that came to Joel. Or Micah, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. This is how prophetic books begin. It's how they start with words that sound either just like this or very similar to it. The surprise comes, however, with the introduction this morning of the prophet in question. Did you see his name? Jonah, Jonah the son of Amittai. The only other reference we have to Jonah in the whole Old Testament is found in the book of 2 Kings. Now, I have to teach for a second. Stay with me. I'm going to apply it, help us see why it's good news what this means for us. But I'm going to teach for a second. In the book of 2 Kings, we encounter a nation divided. And so really quickly, here's the history of Israel. Israel, God's people, chosen, formed in slavery, rescued from slavery. Eventually, they have a king over top of them, first Saul, then David. And at this high point, Israel's led under King Solomon. And in the book of Kings, we find really Israel flourishing. They're killing it. They're this global economic kind of power, even though they're this small, tiny nation. People from all over the world are flocking there. And yet, wrapped up in that blessing is tremendous disobedience from Israel. And all of a sudden, Israel goes from their sort of high point as a nation, and they begin to crumble because of their unfaithfulness to God's covenant, their unfaithfulness to his words. And eventually it gets so bad that this kingdom, this one people, is divided. In the north you have Israel and its capital, Samaria. And in the south you have Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. North Israel, Samaria. South Judah, Jerusalem. And while both kingdoms at this point in the history are both largely on a trajectory away from God, the northern kingdom is particularly bad, particularly evil. You know, the book of First and Second Kings, that they trace like 20, 20 northern kings, and zero for 20 are good. I don't know if you watch baseball, but if you were to go zero for 20, that's bad. They're all bad. 
Meanwhile, Judah's batting like 50%. And it's important to note that at this point, at the point Jonah enters the scene, he is under the reign of Jeroboam II, this bad and evil king. Now the prophet and the king related to each other in this sort of uneasy relationship throughout the, uh, the Old Testament. The prophet's job was to act as this covenant watchdog to say, hey, Israel, here's what God is calling you to do and here's what you're doing. Repent and do what you're supposed to do. Act as this covenant watchdog, calling out injustice and they were to speak without political and personal motivation on Yahweh's behalf. And in return, we read that the prophets received not celebration and applause, but scorn and danger, poverty and affliction. But when we encounter Jonah in 2 Kings, we strangely do not get the sense that there's any hostility between Jonah and Jeroboam II. Jonah is not on the run. Jonah is not fearing for his life. Jonah lives and breathes in a moment of momentary, military, and cultural reprieve from their enemies. Israel, in this brief glimpse, because of God's faithfulness, is flourishing. Their borders are expanding, and Jonah exists as this good times prophet while Israel is doing well. And so we read this in 2 Kings 14.23. Here's the context that Jonah is prophesying in. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Listen, what did Jeroboam do? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that's a different Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the board of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant who? Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath-Hefer. And why did the Lord do this? Why did he give them blessing? Why did he bless Israel in this time? Was it because they were good? No, we've already seen they're bad. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was, was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Israel, at this time, is thoroughly and utterly corrupt and evil. And so if you read the prophet Amos, who is prophesying during Jeroboam II's reign, same time as Jonah, you find Amos is calling out his evil and unjust reign. He's doing the job of a prophet. And if you read the prophet Hosea, who is also ministering in the same time as Jonah, you find that he's calling out the unfaithfulness of Israel, the unfaithfulness of Jeroboam. But there is no record of Jonah saying any of that stuff. Just this. Your lands will flourish. Your borders will grow. All green lights ahead. He is the good times prophet. In comparison to his doom and gloom contemporaries, always prophesying bad things for Israel, the late Tim Keller wrote this, that the original readers of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as intensely patriotic and a highly partisan nationalist. All of this makes Jonah a very, very surprising choice for what God says next. And this brings us to our first point this morning. 
one of the great themes of this small book. Ready? Point number one, surprised by God's mercy. Look at Jonah 1, 1 to 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God's word comes to this good times prophet, and in an unprecedented twist, for the first time in the history of God's people, he calls a prophet to leave Israel and go preach to a foreign nation. Go bring that good news, Israel, to those people who have not yet heard about me, who don't know me. Go, he says to Jonah. And not just any nation, but to the great city of Nineveh, part of the great Assyrian Empire. Now, Assyria... By the time of Jeroboam II, Assyria has been threatening Israel's existence for over half a century. They are aggressively imperialistic. Assyria was a scourge of the known world. There is evil, small e evil, and then there is capital E evil, the kinds of atrocities committed by the Assyrian Empire. It was horrible. Horrible. Listen to this one Assyrian king describe with glee what he would do to his conquered enemy. And if you're squeamish, just warning. You can close your ears, cover your eyes, I don't know. Listen to what he says. Here's Assyria, the Assyria to which Jonah is to go. King says this, I flayed the skin from as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built with them a tower before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. The historian Tom Holland calls Assyria a ferociously militarist regime. What's more, Assyria's evil was conducted, like many other nations in their day, under the auspices, under the supposed direction of the goddess Ishtar. And so here's what you have. In every way then, politically, ethnically, religiously, Ninevites were the enemies of Israelites. In every, it's, it's hard to imagine these days just how opposite these people were, just how antagonistic these two nations were towards each other. Even our current tensions fail to really encapsulate the tension of that day. It was open and celebrated hatred between the two. And yet it's to the Ninevites that God calls Jonah to go. We see God's mercy in two very surprising ways this morning. Here's the first way. In verse 2, in verse 2, look at your Bible, the Lord, Yahweh, he calls Nineveh that great city. Do you see that? That great city. And on one level, the meaning is just obvious and plain. Nineveh is a great city. As we'll discover, it's a very populous city. It's the seat of the royal family. It's the cultural hub of the Assyrian Empire, though not the capital at the time. 
Assyria is a great city. It's a New York. It's a, it's a London. It's a, it's a Tokyo. It's a, it's a great city. But I think there's another reason that God calls Nineveh great. Or we could translate that phrase great city to important city. Nineveh, that important city. And to see why Nineveh is an important city to God, we have to go to the end of this book, where Jonah is moping that Nineveh has repented, spoiler, and now moping that his shade-providing plant has now died. And while he's moping, Yahweh responds with this, Jonah 4, 10 to 11, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then he says this, you're sad about this, Jonah. And should not I pity Nineveh, that important city or that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? In the truest sense, Nineveh is important because there are people in it, 120,000 souls, whom God loves, who he cares about. 120,000 people who do not know the Lord. And not just people who do not know the Lord, but people who in every way hate the Lord and hate his people. And what is the Lord's response to the hatred of Nineveh? What is the Lord's response to our hatred of him? Compassion. He says, and should not I pity Nineveh? Here's the connection I want us to draw this morning. How do you feel about the people of Vancouver? How, how do you feel about them? When you think about those who clutter the sidewalks on the downtown east side, selling their bodies or stolen goods just to get another hit, do you wish they would just go away? Has the rising death toll from the opioid crisis ceased to make an impact on you? Dismissing it because you tell yourselves they brought it on themselves. How do you feel about the people of Vancouver? Do you loathe the wealthy? Do you harbor resentment and envy to the extent that you would not ever dare speak the gospel to them? Do you agree with their own assessment that they have everything they need? Or do you feel compassion towards the wealthy? How do you feel about the people of Vancouver? Do you loathe that person loved by God, wishing for their destruction across the street on the other side of the protest from you? How do you feel about the people of Vancouver? The, the curious thing, look back at your text with me. Look back at Jonah. The curious thing about this word evil in Jonah 1-2 is that on one level, it's, it very simply refer, refers to the evil that Assyria has done. Like just the evil they do and keep on doing. And it's just a ton of evil to like come up to the Lord like a stench before him. But, but also this word can be nuanced to be understood as the evil done to Assyria. The evil perpetuated within Assyria. And so there's a cycle of evil. Evil they're doing and evil done to them. And evil they're doing and evil done to them. Do you see that? And God looks at the Ninevites, both the oppressed 
and the oppressors. He looks at all humanity, every tribe, every socioeconomic class, to people on both sides of the protest, and he says, you're important to me. I feel compassion towards you. Do, do you know this God? If you've come in this morning and you're new, new to church, new to Christianity, new to all this stuff, let me just introduce you to what our God is like. So, for example, in Genesis 6, God floods the world in judgment. And that is a gruesome truth to behold, and it's true. But do you know what, what comes right before the flood? Genesis 6, 5 to 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was, only, was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's not, it's not a, a deity gleefully like, smiting and destroying and burning and pillaging. He sees evil, and it grieved him to his heart. God's justice is preceded always by his compassion, by his grief. It's why in the New Testament book of 2 Peter, when some believers are wondering, Jesus, why haven't you come back? Do you see how bad it is? Do you not know? Like, look around. And they're wondering, Jesus, why haven't you come back yet? Peter connects Jesus' delay to God's compassionate character, to God's compassionate patience. He says in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God looks at Nineveh, and yes, he feels righteous indignation. Their evil is great. But his response to their great evil in this great city is great compassion, great mercy. And we see that compassion in the second surprising manifestation of mercy in these verses. He sends Jonah. He sends this nationalist prophet, this ethnocentric prophet, to call out against this great city. Now, it's a bit unclear at this point in the story what exactly calling out against a national enemy looks like, what, what that entails. But at minimum, in calling out against this city, Jonah knows that he would be providing this city with an opportunity to repent, to avoid God's just wrath that he has stored up for evil like this. See, you and I again, continuing with an introduction to our God, you and I are not like God. We're not like him. We think we are, but we're not. See, where we let our need for justice overrun any sense of compassion, God never loses sight of the person. He is overflowing with love. Or, when we let our need for compassion overrun what is right and wrong, overrun our sense of justice. God will always do what is right. God will always do what is just. Now, how do we know this? Because we have the cross. At the cross of Jesus, we have this perfect meeting, this kissing, you could say, of God's justice and his compassion. God's justice. 
The penalty for sin needs to be paid. But God's compassion, he pays it himself. It falls upon Jesus. God is not like us. And Jonah can't handle it. He can't handle it. He he can't do it. Jonah knows that he could be the means by which Nineveh is saved. And so what does he do? Our second and final point this morning. Point number two. So surprised by God's mercy. Two, surprised by our response. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And what does Jonah do? We pick it up in verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to, again, Tarshish, again, away from the presence of the Lord. It's hard to overstate how surprising the response of Jonah is here. Again, to read the prophets is to see God speak And sure, some are reluctant at times, but eventually they obey. But here, our passage this morning is actually in its very grammar, in the very way it's written, is structured to highlight Jonah's disobedience. To highlight that God is saying something and Jonah is doing the exact opposite. God is saying up, but Jonah goes down. Look, one commentator, Kevin Youngblood, he he translates this verse like this. He says, up, go to Nineveh, that great metropolis, and condemn it because their evil has come up before me, right? The movement is up here. So what does Jonah do? So Jonah got up. So far, so good. He's on his feet. Maybe he was napping. He's a good times prophet. So eating grapes, something. He got up to flee, to go away. He went down. To Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went away from Yahweh's presence. God says go, and Jonah says no. He says no. And just to give you an idea of what's happening here, do we, do we have that map? We have the map. I don't know if you're a map person. I'm actually not a map person, but I was told there might be people in your church who are map people. So this is for you. You're welcome. Here's what's happening. So Full disclosure, we don't actually know where Tarshish is. What we do know is that it was on the edge of the known world. We think most likely sort of that southwest tip of what is today Spain. And so there's, there's Nineveh, there's Assyria, and Tarshish is basically not Nineveh. <laughs> not Assyria. It's not like he got confused, like, oh, maybe I'm taking a circuitous route. no. <laughs> He's going intentionally and purposefully in the opposite direction of where he's supposed to go. And it says, the narrative says this twice. We can keep that map up there just for now. He says he's doing this to get away from Yahweh's presence. Away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you've been around here for a bit, just like Jonah, you would know that Jonah's pursuit to Tarshish, away from God's presence, away from the presence of Yahweh is futile. And we know this because Psalm 139 tells us this. David prays this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell, listen, in the uttermost part of the sea, even there, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And surely Jonah knows this as well. But perhaps, perhaps he holds out hope that in a faraway land like Tarshish, where Isaiah says, by the way, that God's glory is yet to be revealed, God's hand, perhaps in Tarshish, will be lighter. Perhaps in this faraway place, his presence will be less intense. Perhaps in this faraway place, Jonah's disobedience less magnified. Perhaps God will just forget about him in Tarshish. And while we don't know Jonah's thought process entirely, we do know one thing for sure. That in fleeing to Tarshish, Jonah is saying this. His life is saying this. I'd rather die than live in a world where God is like this. I'd rather die. I'd rather not live in a world than exist in a place where God is like this. Where he asks People like me to go to yucky Ninevites so that they may repent. I'd rather not be in that world. I just wash my hands of it. That's what he's doing. I'd rather not be here. For Jonah, here's the link. For Jonah, his idolatry, his nationalism, his soon-to-be-exposed racism, his ethnic pride, has supplanted the Lord as his most beloved treasure in his life, as all idols do. And Jonah's idolatry, that thing he loves more than God, Jonah's idolatry is proven in his disobedience. It's shown in his flight. It's what has led to his surprising response, his distaste for God's mercy. And may I suggest that idolatry does the exact same thing in us. I was explaining to my community group this past week, which, by the way, if you're not in a community group, that's where meaningful things happen in this church, and so be in a community group. I was explaining to my community group this past week, we are a bunch of guys sitting around a fire, and I was explaining to them that the two big idols in my life are, are power and control. Some of you are like, I knew it. You're right. And would you believe it, I am most sad and angry and reclusive when God challenges and threatens these idols. When he puts me in situations that are beyond my leadership, beyond my administrating, beyond my controlling powers, when he makes me weak and then asks me to serve out of that weakness. I hate it. I hate it. And would you know this past Sunday night, uh, Maisie and I, we were driving home with our kids on the highway. And of course, I turned to her and asked, would you want to just keep on driving to Whistler? We could just keep on going. We, we could just avoid all these things altogether, right? Find the Tarshish of our own, of my own. When my idols are being threatened, I run. You run. What do you do? Some of us, some of you, have deeply established idols of autonomy in your life. I'm an island unto myself. I'm self-sufficient. I'm myself. So when God calls you to a relationship of humble submission, you flee. Sometimes out of the church or out of the relationship altogether. Because you'd rather not deal with that. 
Others of you have idolized sex. You want it with whom you want it, when you want it. So when God calls you to self-control, abstinence, delighting in him rather than delighting in the flesh, you, like Jonah, say you'd rather not live in a world where God is like this, or God believes something like this, or designed us like this, or asked this of me. Or, or maybe it's comfort. Picture Jonah on his couch with those grapes again. Maybe it's comfort, which is your greatest love. So when God calls you to downsize, or give an unreasonable amount of money away, or step into full-time ministry, or go across the world to proclaim his name, you and we and I run. Desperately seeking a place away from Yahweh's presence. And it sounds so stupid to say out loud, but don't we believe that? Because you and I are like Jonah. The book of Jonah, at least in the very start here, comes to us as a warning to all of us who have loved something or someone more than God. To flee from God, to run in disobedience, is incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous. J Jonah's downward journey is not just geographical. As one scholar writes, the repetition of this verb, he descended, indicates that Jonah's westward journey is, spiritually speaking, a downward journey. What's more, it's likely that when it says that Jonah paid the fare for this boat, it means probably that Jonah bought out the boat. That he, he bought the whole boat. This whole thing, here's all this money, just the whole thing. Again, this is probably like a, like a three-year round trip. Got it covered. Just going to buy the whole thing. I'm going all of it. Disobedience to God's call is costly in more than one way. It costs Jonah financially, but perhaps more devastatingly, it costs him spiritually. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this. I want to be sympathetic to Jonah. I think we should be sympathetic to Jonah if we're going to be sympathetic to ourselves. What God is asking Jonah to do is terrifying. Again, Tim Keller, in, in that book there, he writes that it's the equivalent of God calling a Jewish rabbi to stand on the streets of Berlin in 1941 and call out against Nazi Germany. So, like, we can be pretty sympathetic to, to Jonah, right? The, the, the call on his life is dangerous. The call on his life is extreme. But there is something more terrifying. There is something more terrifying than what God has called us to do. And it's saying no to his call. God is calling you and I, you and I, to say yes to him. But we say no. And so we run. And I don't know how you've come this morning. Maybe you're saying yes to God. Or maybe you're on the run. Maybe Vancouver is your Tarshish, a place you think you're safe from his view, safe from his hold on your life, safe from his demands. If that's you this morning, the invitation found throughout the book of Jonah is to first see God's great mercy to sinners like us, and second, 
to repent, to turn and follow him, to say yes to him. It's an invitation that is not just extended to our enemies, but to us Jonas as well, who think we have it all together, who think we're self-righteous, who, who think we've got it figured out. In Matthew 9, as Jesus is surveying the crowds of people who've come from all over to be healed by him, to hear his teaching, to be with him, Matthew says that when Jesus, who is God, when Jesus saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion for them. Think about this. The God who has eternally had compassion on all who would bear his image has now come to earth and Jesus, as God, is having compassion on this crowd. Because they were harassed and helpless, Matthew says, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' compassion, his love for Jonah's like you and me, is what will drive him all the way to the cross. All the way to his death. Jesus will pay the price for our sin. He will descend all the way into death on our behalf. Jesus will go away from the presence of the Lord that you and I this morning, maybe for the first time ever, would be brought into his presence. Would know what it is to turn and find a loving father welcoming us home. Would you trust Jesus this morning? Would you trust him? God's surprising work in Jesus is greater than the evil and surprising response of our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would your mercy transform us? So whether we come this morning as self-righteous Jonas or obviously disobedient Ninevites, would we see your hand, regardless of how we come, in our life, drawing us to yourself? We thank you that before the foot of the cross there is level ground. That you're calling all people to bow before you, to trust in your mercy, to trust in your kindness, and to find life and life eternal in you and you alone. And so I pray that we'd respond with a big thank you with our lives. That you'd empower us by your spirit to live from your mercy as we go out to proclaim your goodness, your excellencies to all we encounter. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.